0: Well, who do you think these words by Prince Philip are about? X might be described as an underprivileged, working-class victim of political and religious persecution. Or, Or what about these words about the same person by former leader of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev? X was the first socialist the first to seek a better life for mankind. Or in a similar vein, Fidel Castro, the Cuban communist leader, he once said, I never saw a contradiction between the ideas that sustain me, that's communism, and the ideas of that symbol, of that extraordinary figure of X. Working class victim, the first socialist, an extraordinary figure. Who who are they talking about? Well, I think you should get it with this last one, this time from Thomas Jefferson, one of the founders of America. X did not mean to impose himself on mankind as the son of God. Uh, Of course, we're talking about the individual known to the world as Jesus Christ, aren't we? But as we can see, he's known to the world as a lot of different things as a victim as a martyr as a symbol as a good man as a great teacher as dangerous as a socialist as a marxist revolutionary as a peacemaker as a great storyteller as a fool as a liar as a lunatic as a lord as myth as a miracle worker as a magician as a leader as a king as an outcast, uh, as one more historical figure silenced by the authorities. At first glance, Jesus' life is fairly simple, I think. He never travelled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He never held a political position. He never wrote a book. He never married. He never had sex. He didn't have kids. He never attended university. He never travelled the world, he never set up his own company, and he didn't invent a new product. He died aged 33, both homeless and poor, having spent most of his life working as a carpenter with his dad. And yet, Jesus is possibly the most famous person in all of history, right? More songs have been sung about him artwork created of him and books written discussing him than anyone who has ever lived. You'll recognize some of these things from Kanye West to Jesus Christ Superstar to professional athletes, the Simpsons, Leonardo da Vinci to the Jesus is my homeboy t-shirts which celebrities seem to wear. It seems that everybody has something to say on Jesus even if they've never really thought about it at all. At the moment, we're in a sermon series, as you know. We're looking at the values in our church, the things that we stand for and are committed to, and the things that are not going to change. And we've already looked at the Bible, and this week, we're examining the value that we are committed to Jesus Christ, not just as anything, but as our Lord and our Saviour. If you're a Christian today, that's possibly a phrase that rolls off the tongue. You've said that before, but Could you defend it? Do you know what that phrase actually means? And know what it means to be committed to Jesus as Lord and Saviour? And if you're not a Christian today, you might strongly disagree. You might think that is ridiculous. Or you might never have given Jesus a moment's thought. And you're curious as to why he would be so famous. Uh, And so today we're going to do three very simple things. Number one, we're going to look at what we believe. What do we believe? Number two, we're going to ask why we believe it. And number three, we're going to ask how does it change us? Very simple. No frills. I don't really like frills. Uh, What do we believe? Why do we believe it? And how does it change us? Uh, You should have one of the handouts. Those three questions should be on there for you to follow. So let's dive into the first one. What do we believe? Earlier we read from the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1, and this is one of what, where I want to spend most of our time. Colossians is a letter, it's written by Paul, and as we saw last week, it is breathed out by God. These are God's words. And so, if you like, this is what God has to say through Paul. And this passage is speaking about Jesus, we're going to see that. So, this is now not Prince Philip or, or Thomas Jefferson or, or any other interesting person and the interesting things they had to say on Jesus. This is God on Jesus. It's like an exclusive interview. And God is saying, This is Jesus. And it's way more striking than what anybody else has been saying. Jesus is announced in this passage, if you look with me in verse 15, right at the start, as the Son with a capital S, and he's called the firstborn over all creation. This doesn't mean that he was born first, but that he owns creation. He's over it all. And Paul spells it out as we move into verse 16. In him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, rulers and leaders all things were created through him and for him. So Jesus is, according to this passage, the creator of the whole world. Most of us, I think, uh, can, can, when we picture Jesus, we can picture him being born in a manger, roughly 2,000 years ago, right? We know the story well, shepherds and stars and things. We've all dressed with a tea towel on our head at some point. But here, Paul is saying that Jesus existed not just before the the, the Bethlehem story, but before the creation of the world. And, And actually, Jesus is the creator of the world. Based on this passage, we could divide everything up in our world well, everything up, into two categories. One would be the category of creator, right? And the other category would be everything else. Sky, land, animals, humans, (laughs) pop music, video games, politics, the law, match of the day, the Simpsons, classical art, you name it, it's all made by Jesus and for Jesus somehow. Uh, And Paul strongly emphasizes this in verse 17, with me there, Jesus is before all things, and in him, all things, not some things, all things, hold together. The sun shines and the rain falls, the law is just, comedy is funny, medicine works, and gravity holds us all in place. Why? Because of Jesus. Jesus. Because in him, all things hold together. That is a stunning description of the baby in a manger, right? Well, the best word that the Bible uses to sum all of this up, and the word, not really chosen by REC, because the Bible chooses it, but the word that we've got in our value is the word Lord. The Greek word, uh, is the word kyrios and it refers to lots and lots of different things. Socially, it would be used in New Testament times as a term of respect, to signify superior status, uh, as a way of submitting to authority. Maybe similar to our sir today. You'd call someone a sir, wouldn't you? Teachers and leaders were often called lord, as was Jesus, uh, as were political rulers, In Jesus' day, Caesar, who was the leader of the Romans, he demanded that his subjects would confess that he is Lord. And the word has important religious connotations too. Many ancient religions would refer to their gods and goddesses as Lord, praying to them as Lord, and seeing them as having authority over their lives. And the Jews had a particular use of the word Lord. They use the Hebrew word Adonai. You don't really need to worry about these Hebrew and Greek words, but it's interesting. They use the Hebrew word Adonai, which means my Lord, to describe God. And in particular, they're emphasizing his holiness and his majesty. If you open your Old Testament at any page, really, you'll often see the word Lord in all capitals. And that's what that word is. And so Jesus, as Lord, draws on all of these different things and sums it up. And most significantly in Colossians, Jesus is being identified as the Son of God. Or maybe better, God the Son. (coughs) The second person of the Trinity. God himself, fully God. We're not going to dwell on the word Trinity. And if you've never heard of that word before, do come and ask afterwards. But this means that Jesus existed before he was born as a human. It means he was there at creation. Indeed, he is the creator. And it means that he is the sustainer of all things that exist. It means that he is ruler with authority and with power, worthy of our respect and our worship. He is king. He is leader. Jesus is Lord. There's a fitting song that we're going to sing at the end, uh, entitled Jesus is Lord, quite simple, and it gets this across well. Resplendent power, eternal word, our rock, the son of God, the king whose glory fills the heavens. All of that is what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 to 17, and what we in REC, are claiming to be committed to, right? That song, Jesus is Lord, also includes another line. We're going to sing it at the end. And it's this line, Yet in his wisdom, Jesus laid aside his crown. I don't know whether you have been following um, the news this week. Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. Uh, But this week it's been revealed that Prince Harry is to step down from his royal duties. I I don't really care that much about the royal family. Um, I think that's treason, isn't it? But but it's been in the headlines all week, right? And our nation, as far as I can tell, the people who care, uh, is a bit divided. Some people feel that that's terrible. How could he possibly abdicate those duties? And it's terrible the way he did it without telling anyone. It's not fair on the other members of the royal family. Other people feel sorry for him and Meghan. All they want to do is live a normal life, free from the horrors of press intrusion into their private lives, right? He's wanting a break, basically. Well, Harry is not lord of all the universe, thankfully. Um, <laughs> he's not really a lord, is he? He's a, he's a prince, fourth in line to the throne, something like that, fifth in line, I don't really know. But he's wanting, metaphorically, to lay aside his crown, to stop with his royal duties. Is that what Jesus is doing? Is Jesus a little bit tired of sustaining the stars in the sky and and, and making sure that gravity keeps holding everything in place? Is he just wanting a bit of a break, a bit of a rest? Well, Paul doesn't use the language of laying aside his crown in this passage, but he does help us understand why the Lord of all creation Would humble himself, as he says in Philippians 2, and be born in a stable in Bethlehem. Why on earth would the Lord of all creation give that up to be a baby born into the world that he created? The answer, I think, is in Colossians 1, verses 20 to 22. And it's the second part of our value, uh, that Jesus came to be our saviour. Paul tells us in verse 20 that the reason Jesus came, look with me, verse 20, it's in the middle of, a, of the sentence, that be- is because God the Father, God the Father, whoop, I lost where I am, he planned to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus. Jesus. He planned to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus. I've kind of said that verse in a different order, but you get that? The word reconcile is a Latin word. I do find languages fun. I'm sorry. And it really means to bring back together again, to rejoin what was once joined and then became separated Okay, so you imagine two brothers, they're they're very close, they've grown up together, They're, they're, they're joined together, and then something happens to drive them apart. If they were then to come back together, that would be being reconciled. That would be reconciliation. Okay, to rejoin what was once joined and became separated. And the two things in this passage, in this case, are God... And all things, including humans. The Bible teaches that this world is broken, doesn't it? Elsewhere, Paul describes it as groaning. There are a number of terrible and awful things in existence. Illness and sickness, tragedy and bereavement, natural disasters, relationship breakdown, estrangement, mental health struggles, social injustices the list could go on and on and on couldn't it and the bible tells us that that is not the way it should be and the reason that this world is broken in that way is not because god has got too much on his plate but because humans have rebelled against god That doesn't mean that every single individual moment of wrongdoing has a direct consequence in this world. But it does mean that painful and terrible things exist because the world is broken and separated from God. That's exactly what Paul means in verse 21 when he uses the terrifying language of being alienated from God because of our evil behaviour. Most of us, I think, wouldn't consider ourselves particularly evil. I don't know about you. Maybe you do. <laughs> but the Bible tells us that God is Lord. And to move away from God as Lord and to worship something else as Lord, that is evil. That is wrong. And, and the consequence of such behaviour is brokenness, alienation from God. That's the world itself being broken but also people in the world. We know this. We feel this. We look at the news. We look at our relationships with other people. We look really, if we're honest, at our own hearts. And we know that something is not as it should be. Imagine a story set in a world with a really, really fantastic king. This king is wise. And he makes good decisions. He leads well and protects his people from their enemies. He's just, resolving disputes fairly and leading the land in a way that blesses all. It's safe, profitable, and good. It's a beautiful vision, isn't it? It's one that ends many a fantasy story. Think Aragorn and Lord of the Rings. It's a world that we all desire in some way but but then imagine that the fairy tale doesn't end with happily ever after it continues and the people decide that they are better off without this good king and so he's overthrown cast into a dungeon and the people set out to rule themselves it could never be as good right pretty quickly there would be chaos there would be warfare There'd be problems with food supply. There'd be problems with one's neighbours. There'd be disputes and infighting. It would be terrible. Friends, that's the story of the Bible. God is that good king, and it is sweet and wonderful to live in his kingdom. And yet we have rebelled against that good king, chosen a different lord, and as a result, the peace is shattered and the world is broken. The good world in which we lived is now groaning in pain. And bringing back together again, you remember that word, reconcile. Bringing back together again God and this world, including us, is what Jesus came to achieve. Paul tells us that this took place through his blood, verse 20, shed on the cross. The cross is probably the most famous thing about Jesus, isn't it? Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that he died on a cross. But most people think that Jesus was some sort of martyr, a political martyr, maybe, or a great symbol of sacrifice, a tragedy, a victim. Maybe Jesus is some of those things in some ways. But that's not the point of Jesus' death. And it's not the point of why he came. Paul is not saying that the creator and the sustainer of the whole universe, who holds everything in his hands, came to earth to do some really good things. That wouldn't make any sense. Paul is not saying that the God of all things, the powerful Lord, the mighty one of all creation, came to earth to be a powerful symbol of sacrifice. It would be ludicrous to think that that were true. No, no, no. Paul is saying that Jesus' blood shed on the cross is how peace comes between God and humankind, the two alienated parties. Death is a real thing in this world. It is horrendous. Anyone who has experienced any form of death, any form of bereavement, which is most of us, knows this to be true. It is awful, tremendously painful, and the greatest example of the brokenness that exists in our world. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. And yet, Jesus did not sin. So when he died, he burst apart the transaction that says that sin equals death and that death is as a result of sin. A sinless man died. Whose sins did he die for? Not his, but ours. Our sin, our rebellion, our rejection of the good king was placed upon Jesus's shoulders. And this means in God's sight, we are sinless. Look what Paul says in, in verse 22. We have been reconciled by Christ's physical body through death to, so that we are presented wholly in God's sight without blemish and free from accusation. The good king can't accuse us of having rejected him. The good king becomes our good king once more As if we'd never rejected him in the first place. Jesus is, therefore, not just our Lord, but also our Saviour. And that is what REC is committed to. We do not believe, really, that Jesus is a good man. We don't believe, really, that he's a great storyteller or a miracle worker. We do not believe really that he's a political agitator or a subversive socialist that disrupted the status quo. We believe that he is Lord, creator and sustainer of everything in the world, who in his wisdom humbled himself and obeyed the Father's command to come to this earth as a human, live the life that we couldn't, and die the death that we deserve, thus saving us and reconciling us to a right relationship with God, and he was resurrected so that we could live with him as Lord, worshipping, praising, and serving him as we were made to do. What a glorious vision that is. We are committed at REC to Jesus as our Lord and Saviour. Well, you might think at this point, That's all very well and good, but I just don't believe it. I think Jesus was just a human, and Paul's words in Colossians are misguided. I don't think Jesus was Lord, and I don't think he's therefore any kind of saviour. If he does save us, if we even need saving, it's because he said some interesting things that might better our lives and society, And it's a shame he died so young. His death was tragic, but it didn't save us. At this church, at REC, we're fairly unapologetic about what we believe. And we don't believe it because we've come up with some newfangled philosophy and we're really trying desperately to convince you of its truth. We believe it primarily not because of us at all, but because of two simple reasons. The Bible tells us and Jesus himself tells us. The two are connected, of course, as Jesus telling us is recorded in the Bible. But they are the two reasons. There we go. On our website, there are some verses connected to this value, which all indicate the Bible telling us that Jesus is our Lord and Saviour. Two of the verses are people that actually met Jesus. The first is Martha. Martha. She was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, and she says, "Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God." And the second is Thomas, another one of Jesus's followers, who fa- who is famously known as doubting Thomas, who eventually acknowledges Jesus and says, "My Lord and my God." These are real people. They are real stories but they are telling us that Jesus is Lord and that people around him saw that he was Lord. The final verse on our website is Romans 10 verse 9, one of the clearest expositions of Jesus as Lord and actually a command to follow him. And here Paul says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. It's not that we might be saved, it's that we will be saved. How do we know that we're Christians? <laughs> because we're believing in our hearts and confessing with our mouths. The second reason is that Jesus himself tells us, he, he frequently refers to ways that emphasize his own lordship and his divinity. He implicitly tells his followers that he can forgive sins, something that they recognize that only God can do, right? In Matthew 16, verses 13, Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, which means Savior. And he calls him the Son of God and is commended by Jesus for doing so. And most explicitly of all, at Jesus' trial in Mark 14, 61, The high priest asks Jesus, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? To which Jesus replies, I am. We have to do something with these claims. And whatever you do, don't go away thinking that Jesus was just a good man or thinking that church is just something nice that we can do. Because Jesus himself, in his life and his words, doesn't allow that. He cannot be just a good man because he claimed to be God. Which means he's either a liar or he is who he says he is. At REC, we're convinced. And that's why we're committed to it. So, lastly how does it change us? We've seen what we believe, and we've looked at why we believe it, but we want to consider what happens when we start believing that. And in particular, we're thinking about our church. These are our values in our church. There are lots of ways that this impacts us as individuals. But we want to ask, how does the church change As a result of the fact that Jesus is, as Paul says in verse 18 of this passage, the head of the body that is the church. The first point, I think, is one of liberation. To know that we are saved means that we are free from sin. What Jesus has done means that we are not trying to prove ourselves to anyone. We're not trying to earn our favour with God. And we're not trying to prove ourselves to one another. We are not in the business of trying to one-up people or better other people. We are liberated from that kind of thinking. I think there is a beautiful, beautiful humility in this as well. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not. I am not Lord. And our pastors and our elders in this church are not Lord. Jesus is. There is no agenda. We are not trying to trick people or to win a massive following or to be super successful or to make lots of money. Our main aim, if our aim is anything, is to worship Jesus as Lord it means we're not better than anyone else and all people whoever they are are welcome to do exactly that in this church it doesn't matter whether you are a multimillionaire or penniless this church is a place to worship jesus as lord and jesus is the lord of multimillionaires and the penniless we are not an exclusive club for people who have all their lives sorted and everything is neat and good and we're really articulate and we know exactly what to say at the right time. We are a group of people in this church, all freed from the snare of sin by God's glorious grace and reconciled to him through Jesus' death, seeking to humbly worship Jesus as Lord We've said that Jesus came to reconcile the whole world to God, and that is true. But Jesus' reconciliatory work does not mean that everybody is automatically a Christian. There are many who continue to reject Jesus as Lord. Maybe that's you today. May you know that this church is not seeking to beat you over the head with how bad you are, But is it extending an invitation for you to come and enjoy being part of a family where Jesus is Lord? Repent and confess that Jesus is Lord and worship him and savour the goodness and the sweetness that comes from doing so. Secondly, having Jesus as our Lord and Saviour focuses us they all begin with f which is nice as a result of being committed to jesus christ as lord and saviour we and i quote from our value which is not the bible but it's hopefully a good summary we try to focus our entire ministry upon who christ is and what he has done for us we desire to be a christ-centered church Everything we do is about preaching Christ crucified. I hope you notice that if you've been here for a few weeks. It means our preaching, of course, but it also means our welcome and refreshments, our Ignite lessons, our life groups, the layout of our church, the building that we use, the coffee that we serve, the staff we hire and the money that we spend. Everything is centred on Christ and seeking to uphold him as Lord and Saviour. This is crucial because it emphasises the things that we are not committed to. It, It means really that we're not committed, get ready, to our welcome and refreshments in themselves. We're not really committed to our Ignite lessons or Sparks lessons or Forge lessons or Ignite Plus. We're not committed to our life groups. To the layout of our church, to the building we use, to the coffee that we serve, to the staff that we hire, or the money that we spend. These things really matter, and we care about them immensely, but they only matter to the extent that we are upholding Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and worshipping Him. Let me take a trivial example (laughs) we care in this church about the coffee that we serve on a Sunday. I don't really drink coffee. I don't really like coffee. But I know that we care about it because we've had disputes about it. <laughs> but we don't care about it because serving coffee is a biblical principle that remains true through all times and in all ages in history. We care about it because God is gracious to us and has been hospitable to us. And therefore, it's good for us to be hospitable to people who come in by serving good coffee. It's good for our coffee to taste nice and not disgusting. Because that's a small picture of the sweet and good relationship we have with God through Jesus. That's kind of a silly example in a way, but it's also kind of not. Everything that we do, small or big, trivial or crucial, teaches us or should teach us that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus is Saviour. It also means that we can do some different things, we could have a different building. We've had a few. We could lay out our chairs differently and all face that way. It'd be weird. We could do, not do life groups anymore and do something different. Or we could change our children's ministry. Or we could do communion on a different day. Our budget might change. We might have different leaders in 10 years' time. Our order of service could be different. The songs that we sing, the instruments that we use, and, indeed, the coffee that we serve. Maybe we'll go to instant. Who knows? We're not committed to any of these things in and of themselves, but committed to preaching Christ's lordship and his saviourship as we do so. And knowing this focuses us and helps us make wise and good decisions. So if you're a member of this church or you're just getting to know our church, don't get too comfortable with the things that we do as a church but get very comfortable with Jesus as Lord and Savior. Because that's what we're committed to. Finally, and to conclude, it fires us. Keeping Jesus as our Lord and Savior, Saviour fires us. New ideas are really exciting to begin with, aren't they? They give a bit of a buzz as people gather round and momentum grows. But eventually, new ideas fizzle out. People move on to the next big thing, and what was once exciting becomes a bit dull. And this can happen to churches. But Jesus never fizzles out, because he's not our new idea. He's the Lord of all the universe and saviour of mankind. (laughs) Members of REC, if we make the layout of this church our focus, we will fizzle out and die. If we make the songs that we sing in themselves the focus, we will fizzle out and die. If we make the groups that we attend, the money that we spend, or the coffee that we serve, our focus, we will fizzle out and die. But if we make Jesus our focus, that will never grow cold or stale. And it doesn't matter whether there's 5,000 people worshipping in REC or five. It doesn't matter whether our music sounds incredible or whether we're singing along to a CD. And it doesn't matter whether things really feel hip and happening or whether it really feels like a struggle. If Jesus is our Lord and Saviour, we are fired week by week to live and serve for him. Our excitement comes from that and not from anything else. Having Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, it frees us It takes our attention off us and onto God and onto the liberatory power of the gospel. It focuses us, enabling us and our leaders to make wise decisions and not get carried away by personal whims or cultural fads. And it fires us. It keeps us excited and motivated through all of the different seasons and the ups and downs of life and church life. Friends, may Jesus be always at the centre in this church from now to eternity. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that in your wisdom, it was your great delight to send your Son to this earth. And Jesus, we thank you that you willingly obeyed Thank you that you are the Lord, the King, the Creator, that you own everything. And yet you humbled yourself and became a human baby to live on this broken earth. Why? To die so that we may share and enjoy a a sweet and good relationship with God the Father Lord we thank you so much for that help us to be a church that never ever 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 forgets it in all the busyness of life in all the busyness of church life and doing things and planning things as we grow let us not be a church that forgets that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Saviour both individually and collectively as a as a church family, thank you, O oh Father, and we pray all of this in Jesus' precious, precious name. Amen.